Thank you so much, Colin. It's uh, the first time. That was great. Lovely. I didn't know those last two songs, but I'm sure glad that you've had them. Uh, it was also interesting to hear uh, Jonathan's report of the camp. Well, it took me back so many years. I was a camp commandant for six years and a chaplain for many more years as well. And um, I was very interested when he said they had 90 portions of chips to eat on the beach, and I wondered what the seagulls thought about that, you know. <laughs> I never sort of uh, got that far. Uh, <clears throat> this morning, before we read chapter one of Esther, before we read, you're going to have a little history lesson and a little geography lesson to set the whole of the story of Esther <clears throat> into context. Actually, it's the very first time I've ever been asked to preach on Esther, so uh, you're very brave, uh, but it's an amazing book, and I've got a lot out of preparation. So <clears throat> if we can first of all put the, <clears throat> the first slide, just two pictures. And uh, you may not be able to see all the detail on the back, but uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the image that he saw in the dream in the time of Daniel, about 100 years or so before the story we have before us in Esther. Now, very, very important to remember to put Esther into context of God's overall plan. And that very much is coming to our thinking already, a plan that starts from before the dawn of time and includes us today. I, I want to really make a link, a very strong link, between what is going on in, in stories like Esther with what's going on today. This is not just a sort of a, a, a little um, glimpse of the past for the sake of it. There are lessons to be learned. Uh, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this amazing dream which went right through the rest of time, uh, and Daniel interpreted it. I'm uh, not here to give a lot of talk about this, but just to show you and remind you that the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream uh, was the kingdoms of the world, the empires that would be uh, follow his. Now, Babylon was the head of fine gold, the Babylonian Empire, destroyed by the Persian, the Eden Persian Empire, represented by the breast and arms of silver. That's where we are today in the story of uh, Esther in the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, followed by the belly and thighs of brass, which was the Macedonian, or we would normally call it today, the Greek Empire. Uh, and in fact, the time when we're reading in the book of Esther, they're just getting ready in Persia for uh, the fighting going on with Greece. And the Greek Empire wasn't very far ahead of them. The Greek Empire eventually gave way to the Roman Empire, and halfway through the Roman Empire, it split into east and west. So that was represented by the legs of iron, finishing with the feet and toes of clay ten kingdoms that would come out of the Roman Empire. That brings us right down to the day in which we live. So you remember that. That's how our story today fits in to God's overview of what history would involve. We're in the Medo-Persian Empire, more, called the per more likely the Persian Empire. The Medes seem to have faded out a bit. Um, but they took over from Babylon. And now we're going to have uh, a little... Uh, geography lesson very quickly and the brown area is the Persian Empire it was a vast empire tremendous amount of land uh, from Macedonia here on the edge of Greece 
and just off the map here, Libya, right through the whole of the upper region uh, and uh, the Middle East, including Israel, uh, the old Babylonian Empire, uh, up into the uh, eastern side of the Black Sea, up to the borders of the Caspian Sea, and right across to India. Tremendous area that the Persian Empire had conquered. Uh, and the, one of the places that was central to the Persian Empire was the city of Susa, which we'll be uh, reading of in chapter one, Susa. So uh, there is the extent of the land that we will see referred to in chapter one. So there we are, end of geography and history lessons. Um, now we'll have a scripture lesson, and we're going to turn to chapter one. I think it's going to be on the screen for us. I'm going to make a few comments as we go through. Uh, it's quite a long chapter, 22 verses, but it's important uh, to read it. It's the Word of God. And uh, you may also find I just skip over a few of the long lists of names that I might have difficulty pronouncing. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, that's Upper Egypt, the Mediterranean coast of North Africa. Um, Xerxes, by the way, was the Greek name for the king Ahasuerus, which was the Hebrew name, the same guy. And again, just to give you some background there, Cyrus was the king of Persia when they took over the Babylonian Empire and defended it in the time of Bel uh, Belshazzar. And uh, after Cyrus uh, came Darius. Cyrus was the one that really assembled the Persian Empire. Darius took over from him, and Darius' son was this man, Exactes, or Ahasuerus, uh, this, uh, the king in the time of our story in Esther. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, military leaders of Persia, Media, princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When all those days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. They certainly did things in a big way in those days. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, 
when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, I bet he was, um, after all that time, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and then we have a list of names, we'll go on to verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for well, she was lovely to look at. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refu refused to come. Then the king became furious, burned with anger, <clears throat> since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. The list there. Uh, <clears throat> we see that they were the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median, uh, Median women of the nobility who had heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal, um, uh, to give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed through all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to his parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming to each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. And I guess we ought to add, may God bless the reading of his words. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that the laws of the Medes and Persians don't apply in Paynton. Uh, and uh, if you thought I was going to give some instruction from this chapter this morning on the place of women in the household, you're wrong. I'm not going to do that. But I can understand why I was asked to look at this chapter rather than somebody from the church here. Not an easy chapter. No, I'm not going to look at that, but rather put it into the context of history. So... There's the setting the scene for the way in which, as you'll see in subsequent weeks, Queen Esther comes to the royal throne and all that happened thereafter. I won't spoil the story by telling you now, only referring to one or two little things. One of the great things about the day in which we live is, um, I find anyway, is YouTube. I know Colin was saying he's looked at YouTube to help sort of select the songs from this morning. 
If you ever look, if you're interested in getting some background to the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, there's an amazing amount of very useful stuff I've found on these old empires. And it's a mistake for us to think that they were all very primitive and uh, very helpless. Sure, they didn't have the technology that we had, but they were vast and amazing empires, including the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire before them. The wonders of the ancient world were very real. The Egyptian Empire, uh, they, they weren't backward. In their days, there was a tremendous uh, uh, amount of, of, of construction. Their ability to build, construct vast edifices uh, was incredible. You remember perhaps the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, but even in Susa, in this chapter, there were Hanging Gardens. Uh, how did they water them in a hot climate? The, the, the way they lived their lives was quite incredible. They were not backward. They were empire after empire in that long period of time between the flood and the coming of the Lord Jesus. And uh, I've got three little phrases to sum up the way these empires came and went. They had huge cities. They had advanced administrations. And thirdly, they conducted ruthless conquests. That was the nature of life for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and many people had to live under those rules. Huge cities, advanced administrations, it may not have been quite what we have today, but the, uh, did you notice as we read the length of time that these celebrations went on? 180 days, six months. Uh, the king was calling all these nobles from all over the empire, the Persian empire and displaying wealth and uh, importance to them. Uh, it wasn't just a conference for a week. Uh, these people traveled a long way, some of them, and uh, in six months they had this amazing uh, set, uh, set to in, in uh, Susa, in the capital. And uh, when you think of the agriculture, the, the need for uh, sowing and reaping and transport and trade the reason why they conquered part of India, I understand, is for what the, spice, the spices and what other things they could get from India, minerals and so on. Tremendous amounts of activity going on in those days. So it's very, very um, <coughs> wrong of us to think that these people were primitive and backward. <coughs> they might not have had the technology of electricity and radio and so on, but they certainly now knew how to organize their empires and... Uh, their ways of living. And so this uh, other um, celebration for all the people in Susie went on for another week. Can you imagine the amount of food they would have needed to have had, as well as the wine, uh, and, and so on. But also, thirdly, the ruthless conquests. In those days, they, uh, they, they, they saw it as part of a national duty to subjugate other people. And so they were always tremendous fightings and battles going on. And uh, in their battles, they didn't just uh, deal with a few soldiers. They exterminated whole communities, women and children as well. And that's the way they came and went, these empires, one after the other. Life was cheap. Blood flowed. And that's the background of what's going on here in this part of 
history. Few cities, and some of them, by the way, were hundreds of thousands of people. Again, I've seen some of these YouTube videos that I mentioned just now, and uh, in archaeology, uh, uh, we're uncovering some of these things, uh, 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 and they've been covered with desert sand over the years, but the extent of these cities and the houses, okay, many of them have been raised to the ground over the centuries since, um, but, but amazing numbers of people and structures and the organization and the administration that went with it. I'm trying to paint a picture that, you know, there, there's similarities with today and the fact that we have huge cities and we have advanced administrations commensurate with our day. And we also have ruthless conquests. So we're going to be looking at that in a moment. I'm going to give you four main little lessons that I've drawn from this introductory chapter and indeed the book as a whole. The wretchedness of the human condition. Okay, they had their parties. They had their celebrations. They had good food. They had plenty of animals to kill and to eat. They had the wine and so on and so forth. But when battles came, when destruction came, there was no mercy. It was a wretchedness. We saw that when they took over uh, Babylon. We saw it when the Babylonians, in turn, going back a little further, took over uh, Israel and, uh, and, and Judah. And by the way, the, the, the timing of this, this story of Esther in the height of the Persian Empire was probably in the 5th century BC, about the mid-400s. I mean, not that long ago, two and a half thousand years ago, and all this was happening. I mean, it's not uh, Jesus, whom we worship, and we remember all his lifestyle. It was 2,000 years ago. We're only going back another 500 years. And this was the world as it was in those days. And there are parallels with our world today. But there wasn't the same sort of emphasis on human rights and the rule of law. Yes, they had their laws, but it was subjugating people. It was uh, very nice if you got a good life. But the uh, misery of so many people, particularly when it came to warfare. Watching one of the tubes, just to make the point a little bit more, um, I, I love looking at the Roman Empire and the lifestyle and, and so on. Incredible amount of achievement, the buildings, and they, did, they invented concrete, the, the Romans, and so on. And one of the uh, videos that I watched was, uh, why didn't the Romans have an industrial revolution? If only they had found the power of steam and then the internal combustion engine and electricity, where would the world be today, 2,000 years on? How is it they didn't find it? How is it it didn't happen? And the answer is very simple. Because human slavery, human labor, was so plentiful and so cheap. If they subjugated other people, all the people were taken as slaves if they weren't killed. And they did the hard work to keep a lifestyle going in the major Roman cities. And it was just the same back in the Persian Empire earlier than that. The wretchedness of the human condition. Nice if you got to the top. But for the rest of the people, yes, they had plenty, uh, or it was available if they could afford it. But life was brutal and life was short. And of course, there was not much medical science in those days either. The wretchedness of the human condition. Point number two, the sovereignty of God and his purposes run like a golden thread through this history. And you're going to see in Esther, 
that God's purposes were there, preserving the Jewish people. You see, we saw just now the vast extent of the Persian Empire, which incorporated most of the Jewish people. And uh, this is just one little point that you're going to come up to uh, as you go through the book. If Haman had his way and the edict had gone out to kill every Jew within the Persian Empire, there would have been no Jews left for Jesus to come and for God's purposes in the nation of Israel to be worked out in history. So uh, whatever the rights and wrongs of what's going on, God's purposes were moving right through human history. You know that from your Old Testament. I mean, as we read the Old Testament, we know a lot about Jewish history. We know about the northern and southern kingdom, we, uh, kingdoms. We have the kings and, 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 and the prophets and so on. But it's these other people all around about that God is bringing in and using for his, the accomplishment of his purposes. And again, I go on to the Romans. When you think that Jesus came in the fullness of time. What does it mean by that? Well, when he did come, it wasn't just uh, uh, the uh, census that Augustus asked for that brought Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, but it was um, uh, the fact that by that time, there was a network of brilliant roads Right throughout the Roman Empire. The Pax Romanus, the people of Rome, meant that people could travel from country to country without a lot of trouble, which is what the early apostles used in spreading the gospel. And it was the Lex Romanus as well, Roman law, which made it so easy for people like Paul to say, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do that to me, and so on. And so God used these old empires, these circumstances that we read of in the book of Esther, these surrounding nations, Babylon before him and Nebuchadnezzar, he's using them all for the outworking of his purposes. And he did so in the Greek Empire afterwards as well. And uh, God's sovereignty is a golden thread throughout human history. And it's good for us to see the way God used even these pagan societies, these heathen peoples, to use his purposes. And that's really one of the important things of the book of Esther that it's God's working through these Gentile peoples. Number three, human responsibility and human weakness. Isn't it amazing that these things are all mixed in together? <laughs> and uh, again, you'll see that um, there was a human responsibility for Mordecai and uh, Esther, his cousin. Uh, and uh, Mordecai was saying to Esther, uh, in, uh, when, when the, the, the persecution of the Jews came to a head, uh, this is your responsibility. And if you don't do it, God will do it through some other way. That's in chapter 4. And uh, he says, you know, we, we have a responsibility under the pressure, not to give in, not to just say, oh, well, that's it, but to say we're going to do whatever God wants us to do and we'll take on board the challenge and we'll fulfill our responsibility in our generation for such a time as this. And uh, human weakness. You'll be very sad when you get to the last chapters of Esther to see what the Jewish people did. Having been released from the threat, they then went and started exterminating other people that were against them. God doesn't condone that. He's not telling us we've got to do the same. Well, I know sometimes when you see some of these people in our media today ridiculing Christianity, and so on and so forth. 
you know, you feel a little bit like John and James, the apostles, the disciples. Um, Lord, can't we call down fire from heaven? <laughs> and sometimes you think, Lord, can't you zap all? Uh, we're not to do that. They did. But that's not an example for us to follow. Human responsibility and human weaknesses are interwoven in this story that's going on in these Old Testament centuries. And they're going on today as well. I see it in my life. Why don't you see it in yours? We have a strange mixture of fulfilling the responsibilities that God has ordained for you, for me, and taught us and prepared for and gifted us to do. But we're still failing for, uh, 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 vessels. We're still those that sometimes you think, why on earth did I do that? Why did I let the Lord down? Why did I not think of that at the time? And there's a great mixture here in this story. Human responsibility and human weakness. And the fourth general point that I'd make this morning is this. Man's rules and God's laws. I jokingly said the law of the Medes and Persians doesn't apply in painting. What I meant was we shouldn't take this, uh, uh, what happened in chapter 1 about uh, making sure that the women had their place and the men had freedom. Uh, we don't say that. It's an example in Scripture that we have to follow. We can misuse Scripture. We can misuse the Scriptures. Uh, we are free in Christ Jesus. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not free to do anything we like, but to do what he likes. To follow him and his inner leading of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we are to look after the and, and, and to recognize the laws of the land. But we're not here to do the works of evil. We're here to say, Lord, guide me. Please help me. Through all the labyrinth of life, the things that are going on socially and the things that are going on in the nations in which we live, Lord, teach me your way and help me to be free to do what you want me to do, the way that you have ordained for me, that I may follow, that I may abide in Christ, that I may do what you want me to do. They sought to follow uh, what the Lord was leading them, and Esther did. But uh, it's ultimately for God's people to look to the law of the Lord, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our day, and to do what he asked us to do, each one of us. We are free to follow Jesus, and uh, we're not bound by the laws of man. I want to conclude with that phrase which comes in chapter 4, for such a time as this. In view of these principles that I sought to just open up, the wretchedness of the human condition, the sovereignty of God and his purposes working through history like a golden thread, human responsibility and human weakness, and man's rules and God's laws, we're under the law of love, the law of love of Jesus. Um, drawing that into our own present circumstances, we don't know what we're going to face. Certainly in the days ahead, we didn't even know we were going to face all the challenges of COVID. And the world is not over, the problems of the world is not over yet. In fact, they've hardly just started. Some of you may have heard me talk about this before. But, uh, you know, we had a tremendous time of grace. Really, I believe it's since Israel went back into the land in 1948 after 1900 years. And uh, they're still the center of God's purposes and the outworking. Because when Jesus comes back to reign, he's going to come back as king of Israel, he will reign on David's throne, but that's in the future.
Um, but um, once they were back in the land and was starting to work out his purposes again, we've had 70 years up to 2018 of tremendous growth and blessing and, uh, and, and, and God's goodness in this world. And you think of what life was like. Well, I can remember just the late 40s, early 50s. And you can remember the ordinary people like us, the tin bath on a Saturday. We never had a bathroom. Didn't have a car. Didn't have a phone. And when we did have a phone, the bills were astronomical, especially if you made phone calls on um, a weekday morning between 9 and 1. Some of you can remember that. And, uh, and now, <laughs> Snapchat, they can have picture and speech going on all the time around the world. And uh, you think of Man in the Moon, the end of the Cold War, development of international flying all over the place. Tremendous progress. Medical science, the development of education and communications. And in 2018, it's almost as if those years of rapid, probably the most rapid development of prosperity and, 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 and wealth and whatnot that was ever known in such a short period. We suddenly found the whole world engulfed in COVID and the challenge to our freedoms, the challenge to our well-beings, and it's still going on. And then we find the forces that were latent in Russia being unleashed against Ukraine. And we find just as it was in the Old Testament, one nation going against another sovereign nation and finding any old excuse to justify themselves. That's what used to happen. And it's happening again now. And we have to watch China with Taiwan. And, uh, and, and those are not the only places. And we suddenly find again we're living in a day when it seems, well, is our well-being and all the things we've taken for granted in a free world, is it all going to go to pieces again under the cost of energy and the maybe the shortage of foodstuffs around the world? I just don't believe this is a tribulation yet because we're still here. But the tribulation, that last seven-year period of this age, when um, judgment comes, I believe the church will be raptured away and then things will happen. While we're still here, we're still praying that the Lord, even in a time when the forewarning of future judgment is coming onto this world, we will give that warning to the world. We will be the Mordecai, the Esther, for such a time as this. And we'll say to the world, you haven't seen anything yet. Because the one thing that we are missing is the real work of the Holy Spirit at the moment. The Holy Spirit is going to be given to us, says Jesus, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And at the same time as the world has had 70 years of tremendous growth and development and prosperity, the church has gone right down the opposite direction. I remember in the 50s, 60s, when we had youth work and so on, vast uh, crowds in the Sunday schools and youth work and so on. Now there's hardly anything left. And uh, there is a bit. We praise God for what we're still able to do. But it's gone the other way. Lord, when are you going to pour out your grace again? We've been preaching it. We've been praying for it. We've been looking for it. And I think we're missing just one point. The Lord says in the last days, fear will take over. People, men's hearts will fail them for fear of what is beginning to happen to the world. Have you noticed that people are getting very fearful? They're beginning to say, what is the world coming to? What's, can we, is around the corner? 
We are afraid. The newspapers are full of it. People call it apocalyptic events that are going on. And it's in a time where the world is afraid. And they may well come to us and say, what an answer. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. For Peter standing on the roof and telling them, you are responsible for the crucifixion of the Messiah. And you can say, what should we do? And 3,000 people were saved under the influence of that sermon. The Philippian jailer, you know, what must I do to be saved? And he didn't mean to be saved spiritually meant safe from the Romans in the morning when they find all my prisoners are gone. Well, you believe in the Lord Jesus. He can look after the Romans and, you, and save you as well. And dear friends, as people around us are beginning to get fearful as to what the future holds, we're still here. We're for such a time as this. It just seems that, like Esther, like Mordecai, we're here for such a time as this. Not to grumble, not to be wistful of the past, and certainly not to try to recapture the past and go back to where we were. But to say, Lord, you're doing a new thing. May the Holy Spirit take the fear that's in society, that's in people's hearts, and make it relevant to salvation. As we talk to individuals and say, look, Jesus is coming back soon. The time of judgment is just around the corner. This is a forewarning. This is an example of what can happen on a far bigger scale. But while we're still here, we can point you to the cross, to the Savior. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, but those days are very short. May the Lord bless you as we seek to learn the lessons from Esther in these next few weeks and apply them to where we're at in God's sovereign golden thread running right throughout history, right down to our day as well. The Lord bless you. Let's just close with a prayer.